Welcome to episode 77 of The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests on this episode are Paul Outlaw and Michaela Tobin. Paul Outlaw is a Los Angeles-based experimental theater artist and vocalist whose award-winning solo projects have been presented across the United States and in Europe. His recent show, BBC, Big Black Cockroach, was at Red Cat's new Original Works Festival here in Los Angeles this past month. And that was directed by Sarah Lyons, who you might remember from episode 72 of The People. I have this thing, I really like working with people who on the surface are completely different than me, but underneath are not. Whether it's different disciplines, different ages, you know, different cultures. Because I think something really juicy comes out of that. Michaela Tobin is a soprano, sound artist, and teacher based in Los Angeles who specializes in experimental voice and contemporary opera composing under the moniker White Boy Scream. I only do projects now with people people that I love. Um, if the subject matters, something I'm passionate about as well, and that aligns with my own beliefs, and is something that I think gives visibility to mar- uh, marginalized points of view. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful to be in a place where like, I can be really picky. And stay tuned at the end of the show. We're going to hear a track from White Boy Scream's newest album, Remains. Also, Paul is in a show by Asher Hartman and the god-awful National Theater Company, The Dope Elf, coming up uh, in September at Yale Union in Portland, Oregon, and then at The Lab in San Francisco, California in spring of 2020. And you might remember that we did a fundraiser for The Dope Elf at General Projects uh, this past June, so of course, we love it, and you should definitely check it out if you can. And I don't have to tell you people that The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. beyond. You know it's like a broken record that's magically repaired. Magic. Paul Outlaw and Michaela Tobin, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, can you tell us about this show you just finished up at the Roy and Disney CalArts Theater here in L.A.? Yeah, this is BBC, um, Big Black Cockroach, which is uh, inspired by Kafka's Metamorphosis. And it was performed at the Now Festival at Red Cat. We just had our last performance last night. And it was fantastic. It was amazing. Oh, thank you guys. Um, so when I got the idea to do not an adaptation, but a piece inspired by Kafka, mm-hmm. um, I proposed something that I thought Red Cat would reject because it was too outrageous. Mm. And I did it intentionally because I was like, fuck it, I don't care. You know, the idea of a conservative white, cis, heterosexual woman who becomes a black man, which is like her nightmare, mm. and and using that to explore American bigotry, sexual violence, misogyny, all that. And I, But I put it out there, and um, they liked the idea. They also liked the team I proposed. So um, I found out that I was invited while I was at the airport on my way to Germany. Mm. And I was going to be on vacation for six weeks, which turned nope. into a writing workshop where I was basically locked in a cellar mm. in Berlin, forcing myself to write. And um, the way that I write is that I don't like, you know, have, okay, five hours I'm going to write or three hours I'm going to write. I basically say, you cannot leave the room mm-hmm. until you write something. So I would be in the room for like 10 hours sometimes. And I'd only be writing for about a half hour sometimes. Yep. Sometimes two hours. It depended. But 
I spent three weeks doing that where I got a first draft. It took me about three and a half weeks of writing this draft. And I think, I, and I had about 25 script pages. And I had done this whole mathematical equation that 25 pages equals 25 minutes. Well, I got back to LA and um, I found out that those 25 pages were 50 minutes. Oh, <laughs> that's nice though. Yeah. It's always easier to pare down. Oh no, it no? isn't. Oh my God. <laughs> my baby, <laughs> my baby. Oh yeah, okay. No. Yeah, so you became a an Yeah, yeah. Mm, you know, and, mm. and what Sarah Lyons, the director, she's also functioned as a dramaturg and she's amazing. She was rigorous and strict and, you know, but also mm. kind. Like if I said, no, I'm not going to cut that, she would wait until the end of rehearsal when I finally said, you're right, and we cut it. <laughs> and it got to the point where I'd come in saying, let's cut this. Let's make this visual or let's put this in the sound design. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also, what we also found out during the rehearsals was that some of the things I wrote first that I thought were great ideas and were easy to write didn't actually make sense once the piece started becoming itself. Yeah, like the, um, there's, there's a section in the middle where there's a, a voiceover mm -hmm. and you're hearing the voices of these different ca two characters I'm playing plus the Kafka mm -hmm. and they're kind of overpowering the person whose body is on stage. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain if you haven't seen it, but it's, uh, it was originally written as a dialogue between the two characters where they were arguing with each other fighting for control of the body. Mm -hmm. And the German wasn't even in it. Mm. Um, and as we developed it, Sarah was very attached to the idea of having the original text appear and in the original language mm -hmm. as a kind of really absurd and um, surreal element. And I realized that the idea of the two characters arguing with each other is a trope that is actually boring and overused, mm. you know, fighting for control of his body. So it was more like one of them heard the other, and the, and the one that was being heard was not even aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then they kept switching as to who was in control of the body. Yeah. But it was never an argument per se. And that was one of those things I had to give up quickly. I wrote that first and fast, and I thought it was great, but it really wasn't. Um, and then a lot of the stuff that I wrote was literary, because I wanted to get that Kafka feeling. Mm -hmm. but I was narrating things that I was actually doing. So it was not mm -hmm. essential. You're seeing it, so you don't need to hear it. Mm -hmm. You know, only in one case where the character is thinking that he's telling someone to help him and is explaining what happened to him, then it made sense to actually hear the narration. But otherwise, we tried to pare it down to live uh eruptions almost of what's going on with me right now yeah and also the shifts between i'm talking to a camera i'm talking mm -hmm. to god i'm talking to myself and i'm talking to the audience which means i don't know there's an audience there but i'm aware that i'm talking in that direction yeah that was so clear too mm -hmm. it was really amazing i like what fascinated by what you said about kind of when you were paring down what went to the what you took out from the script that put into the sound design because the the sound design was like another character like character in the show as well I thought that was really well done you and Jonathan are an amazing team yeah it's, this is like now almost like with almost 10 years mm -hmm. and uh 
I like his style. You know, when you hear his work, you know it's Jonathan. Mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. very particular. And um, I knew that I wanted that for this show. And you'd worked with Sarah Lyons before as well, right? Yes. Um, she has a piece called I'm Very Into You, which is um, inspired, not inspired, actually, it's based on an email correspondence of Kathy Ackers mm -hmm. from 1995. Mm -hmm. She talked about it when she was on the program. Oh, yeah. Cool. yeah. And she's been doing that in different cities. Uh, and so, and basically, she goes to each city and, and well, she asks uh, feminists, uh, gender fluid people, queer people, who some of some of them are not even performers, mm -hmm. to read this correspondence, mm. um, and and then also to bring in their own material from their own lives that is in, that is somehow inspired by that correspondence. And the reason that I ended up working with her on BBC was I was amazed at how fast she put the production together. I mean, mm. obviously she's done it before, so she knows what she's doing. But we basically in a week she got six performers to bear their souls about some very private things and then not only to bear their souls but then to write it and then to perform it in front of a video camera that was this close to you that was being broadcast wow and i just thought wow she, i mean this woman i want to work with her yeah again. and uh Especially for something like if I got, I didn't even know I was going to get the Now Festival, but I knew that we'd have not a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and we kept, I mean, we kept reminding ourselves, we're only doing 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. Although this 25 minutes is kind of jam-packed. Yeah. But, you know, it's not like we're doing a two-hour show and we're doing it so fast. It's, it's, you know, it's spare, full and spare. Yeah. Well, Michaela, can you speak to that that thing of like performing your own stuff that you've written versus performing stuff that someone else has written and yeah. working with a team of people versus working by yourself? Yeah, I mean, it definitely got took me a, a long time to kind of get to a place because my background is in opera performance and classical music. So it took me a long time to get to even give myself permission to kind of start making my own work because I was definitely trained to just kind of be a performer and that's what you do and you wear pearls and a gown and then you're beautiful on the middle of this big stage and everyone throws you roses like that was like the image that of myself since I was like six years old that like was fed to me and that you know um, so by the time I started making my own work it was yeah I think it was just a, a thing about per giving permission um, and then when I started using voice in these different ways, actually, when I started making noise back in Seattle in like 2013, probably, it was because, kind of by accident, because I moved up there with a band after college, because after I finished UCLA, I was like, fuck classical music, fuck opera, I'm quitting, quitting classical music, and I'm moving to Seattle with my band. And my mom was like, <gasps> uh, <laughs> after all this? After all this, she was like, I'm going to kill you. No, they were actually, my parents were surprisingly supportive, so I, I have to be grateful for that. But I moved up there, and of course the band fell apart, because, you know, you're 23 and bands that's what bands, that's what bands do, bands do. Yeah. and then so I started doing stuff on my own but I didn't even use operatic voice there because it was like the separate box you know of like that's my nerdy training and like no one no one cares about that like no one my age cares about that you know and I don't fit into that realm so like I have to figure out something new um so when my band broke up I started just 
messing with gear by myself because I didn't really have a lot of friends in Seattle because I don't know if any of you have lived in the Pacific Northwest, but it's like the, it's, it's kind of well known up there that it's hard to make friends like the, the Seattle freeze. It's like, it takes a while. So I didn't have a lot of friends. So I was just like playing with gear by myself in my basement and started using my voice in like these different ways and kind of using effects on my voice to make it not sound like myself. And I was like, oh, this is like really meta. And, <laughs> and, um, and then eventually, as I started doing that more, I started using my operatic voice and kind of realized like, oh, all of these different parts of me, like I have, I gave myself permission to use and people responded to kind of how visceral an operatic voice is like in a small space, you know, singing and or performing in DIY spots, so like basements and like living rooms of houses or like punk houses and stuff. And I was like this really different thing. And then it kind of morphed into like, whoa, I think I want to make operas. Um, I want to make whole operas again. I want to make an opera in like my own way now because again, it took me a long time to give myself permission to even like use that word, even though like I come from that realm, you know, it's like my, my I know everything about opera and I love opera. Um, so yeah, getting to a place where now I'm making that work, um, I feel like I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I only do projects now with people, people that I love. Um, if the subject matters, something I'm passionate about as well, and that aligns with my own beliefs and is something that I think gives visibility to mar uh, marginalized points of view. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful to be in a place where like, I can be really picky. Um, and that has made kind of the right objects come into, I mean, the right projects come into, again, my orbit. <laughs> That's why I wanted to talk to you today. Yeah. Because I think that was what drew me to, to this uh, relationship is that my background as an actor mm -hmm. was basically someone's going to give you a job, yeah. put you on stage, yeah. you know, uh, put you on be in front of a camera, and you just do your job. And probably the thing know. is, like, not about anything that has to do with your perspective. You know, it's, like, usually Eurocentric or, like, at least in opera. So I just, yeah, I got really tired of not seeing myself in these narratives or, like, ha having really misogynistic narratives, you know? I was like, how many more times am I going to, like, audition or have to, like, ask permission of someone else to, like, play the mad woman who's, like, s like ruined her life, killed herself over some fucking guy? So <laughs> give me a break. Can we, like, create a new dialogue here in 2019? Well, I, I used to be really upset about it and frustrated um, yeah. when I first was starting out because I was like... There was not work for me, mm -hmm. for the type that I was. But I think I now know that it was the best thing that ever happened to yeah. me. Because it led to me creating my own work. It yes. led to me leaving this country mm -hmm. for 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. And starting a life that I still have in Europe. And um, I think if I, you know, if I had been quote-unquote, the acceptable type, or what we used to call the Procter & Gamble type, mm. um, I might wow. have been successful made a lot of money, but I don't think I would have had a very interesting career. Exactly. Um, and it's funny now, my type, you see more, mm -hmm. but it's my type packaged still. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm, I, I, I like this idea of what we, we're doing, which is you know, creating your own work yes. that speaks to themes that you want to speak to. Exactly. And, and the way you want filling, to speak. Yeah, filling that mm -hmm. void that you see in the art or music world I think is so important and that's what I tell like students now because you know I teach voice at CalArts and I 
he taught boys at a bunch of different schools around LA and like even like these little girls you know that I get because I started voice lessons when I was like eight years old and I kind of always just I liked classical music and then everyone told me I was good at it and so I just kept doing it and doing it without any question until like I was 20 something and then I was like wait I don't actually this doesn't who am I like this is something on top that was like on top of me that has nothing really to do with me so like now, yeah, I try and tell students like, hey, you can learn this material. Like we can learn a lot from studying this music, but like you also have the option of making your own work because like I feel like that was never told to me when I was younger. Yeah. I have to ask you something. When you perform, um, there's like a, a traditional way that you expect opera singers, especially mm-hmm. female singers, to hold their bodies mm-hmm. when they perform and it has to do with their technique mm-hmm. but it also has to do with the tradition of performance mm-hmm. so when you do your own work do you have do you present that way or do you have you found a different way i think it's definitely in there um built into the technique of like holding your body a certain way and i do what feels good but then sometimes i will purposely like go against that like in the music video that I did I was like up on that big ladder mm-hmm. with like this big kind of 13 foot gown and you holding were, my you hands. were wearing pearls I was yeah. wearing yeah. pearls <laughs> yeah. Lots of pearls. yeah and the whole video was kind of about also you know my half Filipino heritage and white supremacy the diaspora and also classical training which is they're all mixed up in that um and so when I was holding my hands, like how you see opera singers, which is like the clasped at the at the diaphragm here. And we do that because it's actually like a gesture that that um, kind of gives us support because we're kind of mimicking what's going on in inside with the muscles. Um, but it's also like this kind of like traditional, like, st- like stiff gesture that we do. So I like to play on that as well and kind of bend into it. And it's just like kind of my th- therapeutic way of like digesting my training because it's a part of me but there's also parts of it that I find problematic and so teaching has been a really great way to kind of um I don't know look at all of that and then kind of tell students and younger people the things that like I wish I would have heard when I was younger too yeah and are there things like with traditional acting techniques Paul that you do that you have a similar relationship to well, I mean, I learned um, what's known as the Stanislavski method, mm. you know, sort of traditional method acting mm-hmm. from the inside, using um, your history, you know, substitutions, all of this stuff. And um, that's a basis that I think, since I actually taught it as well, so it's kind of in me, mm-hmm. but I threw it away fairly fast. Uh, in in my work because I started working with a director um, named Ann Bogart um, who works very much about movement, shape, mm-hmm. in addition to the internal stuff. And so I've always tried to find kind of a, a mix between, well, as you guys saw, movement is always a big thing for me yeah, and the use of the voice. And I also believe in strong out external stuff, mm-hmm. making strong external choices and then filling them. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I often actually don't think about my technique, uh, at all. It's so ingrained. It's part of you. Yeah. I just do it. Um, I, there's a, I should tell, there's a little story that I, if anyone who knows me has already heard this story, but when I was, uh, just out of acting school, I saw a production on Broadway of, um, a play called The Dresser, which was then made into a movie. And Tom Courtenay, this British actor, played the lead. And he was playing um, 
this gay character who was the dresser for an old stage actor. And he walked out on stage and he did a very extreme vocal choice. Mm. Um, he had a strong dialect. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what part of England it was. And a really kind of queer way of speaking. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first few minutes I saw the performance, I thought, this is terrible. I'm, I can't watch this. And mm -hmm. but I you know I, but I but I stayed with it because I thought you know I've heard this is brilliant whatever, and by intermission, I was enraptured with what he was doing, hmm. and by the end of the play I had I learned this lesson that you have to make that strong choice to create a person because there are people yeah. who are annoying who sound weird who you don't understand their dialect or the way they speak, mm -hmm. but if you commit to that very strong choice, and fill it. By the end of it, it's an indelible characterization. So yeah. I often tend to go from the voice, say, mm -hmm. okay, how does this person talk? Uh, and then create that voice and then fill it. So I, I think I'm, I've become more of an external performer than an internal one, although I love when I have the time and the, the support to fill it yes. with all of the, the guts. You're listening to episode 77 of The People on Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us anywhere that you get podcasts. It's on Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, Stitcher, everywhere you find podcasts. And uh, you can also find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. Um, so go over, go over there and you can see images from all the shows and you can find all of our past shows there as well. Yeah, go find us there. Um, and now back to our conversation with Paul Outlaw and Michaela Tobin. So, Paul... Start us out by telling us how you lost your voice five days before your most recent performance. <laughs> well, what you probably don't know is that um, Jonathan Snipes, who designed the sound for the show, and uh, he's an amazing sound man and uh, composer. And one of the concepts for the show was that, as you saw, there's, it's just light and sound and performance mm -hmm. and nothing else. And Jonathan thought from the beginning... He wanted to have every sound that you hear be my voice. Mm. So, and he achieved that 95%. Um, at the end, we had a quick cue that we did that we decided to use some other stuff. But everything that you hear, even the musical instruments, mm -hmm. sound effects, are all generated from my voice. I had no idea. Yeah. I love that's that. That's not you speaking German, is it? That's me too. Oh, wow. No. The way he manipulates it, I mean, he was able to, I think you know, at the end, there's this sequence where there's music playing in the mm -hmm. background. That's something he took my voice and turned it into an instrument. And um, so Sunday, before we, was, we opened on Thursday, on Sunday, there was one cue that we hadn't recorded, and it was me screaming mm. as a woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they wanted it to be high-pitched and a mixture between a horror movie scream and an orgasm. Mm -hmm. And I had to do it three or four times, different takes, and... Uh, they liked what I did. Um, we used it, actually, in the very beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. But as I was doing it, there was a voice in the back of my head saying, don't do this. You, you are, you <laughs> was will, it you my will, voice? You will, <laughs> it was probably <laughs> your voice. And you will regret this later. And by the end of the day, I could just feel my voice mm. gone. And I went, you know, I was like a nightmare because I thought... Am I going to be able to do the show? Did I just ruin my voice? Did I, you know, because that, because that can also lead to permanent damage. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I did all the things, you know. I gargled with salt water. I had manuka honey lozenges. Mm-hmm. I didn't speak, although I had two rehearsals for Asher's show where I had to read. But I just kind of kept it low, and I just did that over and over, and I was drinking throat coat tea by the gallon. Mm-hmm. And by by Wednesday even, by the dress rehearsal, my voice was back. But, um, but I... You know, I, I mean, I have, I've had voice training when I was in acting school, mm-hmm. um, and that was Linklater training. So, I, yeah. I, you know, I have a very good I basis. Yeah. But I don't have, um, what I don't have is, how can I do that kind of screaming mm-hmm. and not ruin my voice? Yeah. It's always been a question. Yeah. Um, I get this question a lot with the voice work that I do and the clients I have. I have a lot of people that are in punk bands and sing metal and, you know, kind of the older we get, our bodies don't bounce back. So I get a lot of people that have been in bands maybe for already like 10 years and now they're like, I've I've been screaming every night on tour and all of a sudden my voice is giving out now. And I'm like, okay, well, this is, we have to build some technique here of like healthy screaming. Um, I think the the most important thing about screaming is you have to connect to a kind of an anchored open throat and feel that sense of support, like really down on the diaphragm, which is like right here at the top of the rib cage, but really opening that throat before you start. Instead of starting from a place of tension, you actually start to scream from a place of kind of this open vessel here. And then you kind of feel the voice. I like to think of the direction of the voice as going down back into your body and like into the earth rather than squeezing the voice out and pushing it forward or projecting it forward, which I think a lot of people in their training or in their in their kind of thinking about how the voice works, they think, oh, the voice goes out of your mouth and forward. And for me, really, I think of this as like the voice is stretched in either direction this way. So when we're mm-hmm. when we're breathing and supporting, we're we're compressing the diaphragm down into the down like into the earth and expanding the rib cage in the space around us, so that the voice is supported going in the opposite direction. Um, so yeah, when I train people how to yell, we start from kind of like an open ah place and then kind of build from there. And then you can kind of dirty up the tone with some vocal fry and kind of adding frontal resonance to kind of give it that grit. Um, but actually, I just did a voice healing workshop in in uh, June that um, kind of culminated in like this cathartic screaming um, section of it. This piece that I wrote, the scream piece. I don't know. Did you see that piece? Which one? It's a, it's kind of like an instructional poem, and it's um, the the kind of prompts get more intense. So it starts off with like. You know, scream in a high place, scream in a low place, and then scream your favorite number, scream the name of your mother, and then scream the name of your first love, scream the name of someone you've lost, scream the name of someone that's hurt you. So it kind of, we get more intense with it and start connecting emotion to kind of this like impulse Um, because that's as an actor, right? Like that becomes, I think, where the strain comes in when when there's a disconnect between technique and the emotion. And so in healthy vocal technique, at least what I like to teach is I like to start from a place of ease where we kind of remove the ego and remove like, okay, how do I want to sound? Or how do I sound? I want to sound like this person or this person on the radio. We get rid of that and we go, okay, no, how do you feel in your body first? How does breathing feel? Does it feel easy? If it doesn't feel easy, then we have to start from even just a place of breathing through an open, relaxed position. Because most people actually breathe with tension. Which is crazy, right? Because like we breathe all, that's the thing that we do, right? Subconsciously. And so a lot of people actually hold tension in their tongue or their throat when they're just breathing. So if we can get rid of that and start from a position there and start the start um, vocalizing or the impulse of vocalizing from this place of ease, then the 
the natural kind of healthy tone will emerge from there. But a lot of people don't ever want to do that because oftentimes, especially if you've kind of used your voice in a way that like use your voice with tension, then the voice, when we pull that tension away or pull those crutches away, the voice becomes smaller. And people are afraid of that because it becomes this like very vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. Um, So it becomes this like very therapeutic process. Um, At least that's what I found it to be. Yeah, it's really interesting how seamlessly you're jumping back and forth between like technical aspects of performance and like a a metaphor for self-realization. Oh, completely. Etc. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So with the screaming, I mean, that's such a powerful um, point of like catharsis. Um, but when we have to control it, like in a recording setting and stuff like that, because we scream when we're babies, right? We can scream forever and ever and ever. We don't lose our voices when we're babies, but we start putting up all these tensions and blockages the older we get just from like being alive. So we try to, when I'm teaching people how to scream, I try to get back to that kind of simpler position. Like, okay, let's just start from. How do we open our throat without tensing up the back of our tongue, for instance? That's so in- difficult. I it's mean, so yeah. The other time I lost my voice a few years ago was not in front of a microphone where I was focusing, mm-hmm. but in a performance, mm-hmm. one of Asher's shows. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that's Asher Hartman, Asher friend Hartman. of the show, the most mentioned person on this show, <laughs> yeah. the most mentioned person yeah. ever yeah. in yeah. LA. Yeah. Well, we, I was in, we were in, we were in Miami uh, doing this performance in a house, mm-hmm. and the the end of the piece in that version was that I start I threw everyone out of the house, mm-hmm. the audience and all the other performers, and I threw them into the backyard, and the woman playing my ex-wife, I just. And this one performance, I just went off. I started jumping mm-hmm. up in the air and screaming and mm-hmm. just get out. It was a really incredible performance. And it felt great until I lost my voice. Yeah. And the funny thing you're talking about, you know, this freedom, you know, mm-hmm. the freedom of the breath is when you're playing a character who's uptight. Exactly. Who loses control, you still have to be in that basic place as a performer but it's it, it's like weird layers it's a weird layer yeah. and so with like the vocal work i do a lot of it is muscular it's it's um muscle control that's at a subconscious level so you know it takes time to kind of train even just breathing correctly um but training these muscles or training the throat to open and that becoming subconscious so that when you go to perform that is where you that's you can be inhabit kind of any emotional realm which you know is also physical but still like I always have that that anchored position like that's that's my rock um you're hired (laughs) (laughs) anytime honestly I adore you Well, so you also have a, a band, I guess, a band or I have an a act noise project. White Voice Scream. Yes. So uh, you also do a lot of screaming yourself. I yes. do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. And, you know, there have been early on performances where I've definitely kind of, if I'm already tired or something or, you know, even a little sick, like I, I've, you know, been sore after. Um, it happens, especially like people that are on tour every night. You know, if you are screaming, it is something that is stressful. Um, and if so, if you're doing 110% every night on tour, yeah, eventually you're going to give out. So a lot of it, too, is like thinking about, OK, how do I how do I kind of inhabit this world without killing myself? 
<laughs> which I think is every artist's kind of struggle. Right. That's a broader question that for everyone engaged in any sort of creative yes. process, right? <laughs> well, I used to describe opera as women screaming. Oh, yeah. Singing. <laughs> well, singing, my voice teacher used to say singing is modified screaming. I love using screaming. I love the line between singing and screaming. There's a line in that instructional poem that I wrote that is um, sing until you're screaming and then scream until you're singing. And I did that with a with my voice healing workshop and it was amazing to hear like this room of people kind of interpret that in their own ways. I saw you <clears throat> it must have been last it was last year at Zebulon. Oh my record release? That too, but yeah. I mean before that. Oh. I saw you performing with this guy Yap Blanc. Oh Yap. Yeah. I love Yap. And when I saw that performance I immediately I thought that's when I talked to you afterwards that we have to work together. Yes. Because I remember that conversation. That performance reminded me of stuff that I used to do um, with my bands mm-hmm. when I was living in Berlin, when, I, we, when we would uh, improvise. Yeah. And on our way to finding songs, mm-hmm. we would work exactly that way. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I could do this with her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of these extended sounds. For those that don't know, Yacht Blanc is like a, a sound kind of voice artist from Europe that does specializes in extended vocal techniques, which are kind of like almost non-musical or non-kind of melodic-based vocalizations that, you know, range from like kind of tone poem-esque, like pulling words apart and pulling vowels and consonants apart to like using electronics to kind of disembody the voice. So he's kind of one of the forefathers of, of this realm of experimental voice work. So I got great to perform with him last year. Two of you, yeah. yeah, so we were just, I was nervous, you know, to do it because it's like, I don't want to step on his toes, but I also like, you know, we're improvising, so there's a relationship there, but it was, it was so fun. Yeah, I love making crazy sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to work together. What should our project be? Yeah, well, I was going to say, it sounded like y'all just decided to do it. So. Well, I've been thinking about Every time it, we see yeah, each other, you know, we decide. We I just think it, I have this thing. I really like working with people who on the surface are completely different than me, mm-hmm. but underneath are not. Right. Whether it's different disciplines, different ages, you know, different cultures. Because I think something really juicy comes out of that. Oh, yeah. I think um, probably it's like the way that uh, this... BBC was done mm-hmm. was that an idea just kind of plopped into my head in January. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. Yeah, and then about this. I I submitted this proposal to the Now Festival not really thinking that they would accept it. Really? Um but it was kind of a lot of my work is based in American history, mm-hmm. uh racial identity, sexual orientation and and violence in American history. Mm-hmm. And there was something about the idea of a white woman mm-hmm. becoming a black man today that is very different than what I usually do because my stuff has a lot of, sometimes you know, goes into the 19th century mm-hmm. or it's futuristic. <clears throat> and this was kind of here and now, but still fantastic, mm-hmm. you know, in the basis of it. And um, it was the easiest process to create this piece. Yeah. You know, once, once I knew I was doing it, I wrote it. That was kind of a hard birth, three weeks of writing. Mm-hmm. But then working with Sarah Lyons, the director, and with um, Chushan Twang, who did the lighting, yeah. and, and Jonathan, we just kind of really moved really well together. I mean, yeah, it was seamless, and like, what a strong creative team. And, and it, was, it was really a lot of fun to work with them. I mean, we, you know, we never, whenever we disagreed, we always resolved it very quickly. Yeah. Um, everyone was very flexible. And so I feel like that way of working, I, would, I like to 
on my next new project or new projects work the same way that just I'm like I'm kind of like open yeah to figuring I feel out like it's what's gonna, gonna happen we'll know it's gonna come yeah. to us yeah the orbit is strong you're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember that The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. You can go to insertblancpress.net, click on The People at the top of the page, and get all the episodes there. Uh, or you can find us anywhere where you find your podcasts, or and or you can find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. The people are everywhere. And now let's get back to our conversation with Paul Outlaw and Michaela Tobin. So, you know, um, traditionally black people have this thing about their hair, like don't touch my hair Mm -hmm. and um, changing up your hair like Samuel Jackson. You know, he always has a different haircut Mm -hmm. in every movie because he actually doesn't have a lot of hair. So he makes hair a part of his work. Um, And so I have this thing about my hair. It's, It's a vanity thing. Like when I get a haircut... I like people to notice it. And I notice that a lot of times white people do not notice when I get a haircut. Mm. I even had my father-in-law once ask me, he's a, he was a medical doctor, if my hair grew. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> you know, racism of different types. Well, so um, you guys all saw the show recently, and none of you mentioned that I shaved off my mustache. <gasps> But you don't always have that mustache. I've had it forever. No, oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I've had it forever, and it was also pretty thick. Yes. But I shaved it off because this is the look for the next show. Yeah. And I had to get rid of those two characters in that show. Yeah. So Greta and Gregory are gone, and this is for Asher. So there's Asher again. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. You look good without the mustache. Too. Thanks. It's, it's the Abe Lincoln look. Yeah, yeah the, beard, the chin strap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Summertime look. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> So I, we talked about earlier how new opera and stuff, and like I compose opera. I've composed two operas. Um, I've seen at least one of them. You saw Unseal Unseen, which was the first one that we did at Highways, actually. Um, no, in Pasadena. Oh, you saw Balerian. Yes. Yeah. So Unseal Unseen was an, was inspired by Bella Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle, and it was kind of this feminist retelling of that story um, as a way to talk about domestic violence, and um, it was a story of a woman trying to leave her abusive husband. Um, and I wrote that with, I have a co-composer, Sharon Chohi Kim, who is also a classically trained singer turned composer. And so we we like to write new opera together. We mix traditional opera style with extended techniques, with electronic music and noise and amplified objects and kind of performance art to create these like pieces but the one I just did that you saw yeah Balerian um was um I wrote based on the life of Jack Parsons um because I'm from Pasadena and I just kind of it was one of those things that we were talking about where you know I was thinking god it's about time that we should write another opera and then I was like something I forget even how I started got inspired by him but somehow he came into my my orbit and then I was like I'm gonna write an opera about him um Jack Parsons is one of the founders of JPL, also a cultist, um, well-known occultist, follower, follower of Aleister Crowley, also um, had like a complicated relationship, magical relationship with L. Ron Hubbard, um, who kind of then went on to create Scientology, but based a lot of that stuff off of the magic that they did together. So Sharon and I wrote a little opera about him, this immersive piece that hoping to remount soon. Um, but I'm also working on another opera with another 
composer um, that's based on the book The Prophet. And um, yeah, and I'm like, oh my God, Paul needs to play the narrator. The composer's Rhea Fowler. Uh She and I actually grew up together, but she's um, a classically trained concert violinist who plays bass and guitar, multi-instrumentalist, and um, also composes. How do you spell her first name? R-H-E-A. She's a a pretty well-known session player Mm -hmm. around L.A. too. She's worked with Jonathan Snipes. I think I know who she is. Yeah, Yeah. she's great. But, you know, she loves the the book and so um, gave it to me as a gift. And I love it too. And so she's like, I want to write an opera about this. Will you help me? And I was like, hell yeah. And so I'm playing the prophet in it. And, oh, my God, you'd be so perfect for the What is it about... Paul, his style, his person that makes him because would Paul make him good for that. is musical and you know obviously all of can encapsulate all these different voices and is so physical um, and I just feel like this opera is a, mixed mixes all of that as well and so the narrator would just be the perfect part for you and and that would be great I don't know maybe that's our project maybe we found it maybe that's it I mean I've done a lot of narration mm-hmm. live not uh, recorded and. I'm, I've always been looking for new ways to do narration, yeah. like not just to be the voice, yes. whether it's the comforting presence or, you know, the host, mm-hmm. but a narrator that that mutates yes, exactly. and maybe is even unreliable exactly. and maybe is even unfriendly. Yes. Yeah. And what, what projects do you have coming up, Paul? Oh, yeah. Well, besides the one of that person whose name will not be mentioned again. <laughs> Asher Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm doing a, a, a brand new piece with a director, a Dutch director, Marika Splint. Oh. And uh, it's kind of an exciting project. It's, yeah. it's called On the Other Side, and it's about borders. Mm-hmm. Borders in contemporary society, borders historically, borders metaphorically, borders of language, borders of gender. And um, the idea is that there will be four performers. We've actually done two residencies, uh, one at the Skirball and one at Automata this year mm. with just two performers. And so it's me and uh, an actress, Vene Asadorian, who is, she's of Armenian descent, but she was raised in Iran. Mm-hmm. And she, her family came to this country about nine years ago when she was a teenager. And so a lot of her, it's a lot of our personal stories that we're using and so she's talking about how her family viewed America, how what her life was like before. And I'm, in the first two parts of our development, I've been talking about my life in Berlin, right before the wall came down and right after, and my feelings about that. But, we, but it's open to all kinds of other stuff. Um, you know, the, the forced migration of Africans to this country and the, yeah. the, that border story is in their queer identity as a mm-hmm. border. Um, the fact that she and I both speak multiple languages, mm. none of which are Spanish, which mm-hmm. is odd since we live in L.A. Um, that relationship amazing. with borders and international, like theater on the international scale that you, that you Paul, kind of like bounce around in, is, is there an analog in the noise scene at all? Like, yeah. It feels like there is, and Michael Morley, who was on with Gabby Strong mm-hmm. earlier, talked a little bit about it. But it, is it as expansive or international as theater oh, yeah. seems to be? Yeah, there's noise everywhere. Um, I was just, I mean, I was just in Mexico City in October um, to play some noise shows and also to do another new opera. Um, And the scene down there is great. I mean, 
all over Europe, of course. But um, yeah, I actually would really like to go to the Philippines to do some noise because um, that's where my mother's from. And I'd like to connect to that more. And it's something that I bring into my noise music as a subject that I explore a lot, which is also having to do with borders is the diaspora um, and kind of what that space is in between kind of your motherland and then also being in the States. Um, But yeah, I guess in the noise scene here, you know, especially in Seattle, there were definitely some diversity issues. I think it's getting a lot better and there's definitely a lot more visibility now. Um, As far as like with my personal practice, I really try and book shows or I like to book shows and work with people um, to work with other people of color. Um, It's just is something that has become more and more important to me and creating that space and like giving platform to other um, people of color to kind of show their music in this genre, in this really niche genre. Um, I know that sometimes it makes people uncomfortable the way that I use race in my work. Too bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. It's actually kind of triggered other people of color before because, you know, they have not had the permission or had not given themselves permission to talk about race in this way um, in this work, you know, because, you know, afraid of, we're afraid of alienating people or something like that. But um, definitely on the new album that I'm working on that's coming out next year, the new White Boy Scream album. I mean, even the name of my project is like a little, you know, tongue-in-cheek, like I'm poking fun. I made that when I was in Seattle because I was like, God, every fucking show I go to is some white boy screaming. And it's like, I like it. I like the way it sounds. Like I grew up listening to this kind of music. It's like an aesthetic. It's like Kurt Cobain, you know. It's like, you know, it's every punk band. And like, um, so it's this kind of wrestling with this thing. I like it, but also, like, where do I fit into this? So I was like, I'm just going to call myself that, and then, like, people will be surprised. Um, but, yeah, the new album that I'm working on is kind of exploring pre-colonial Philippine mythology and kind of I'm inhabiting these characters and talking about colonization and kind of talking of the Spanish of the Philippines and talking about um, kind of creating my own character because I, I feel so in, in the in-between um, but um, I would love to go to the Philippines and make some noise. Well, so Paul, Michaela, thank you guys for being yeah, on the show. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. People. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having us. You've been listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. Find us on Instagram or at Insert Blanc Press or just anywhere you get your podcasts. That'd be great. And I uh, want to let you know that our interstitial music, as always, is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. Big ups. And we're going to go out with a track off Michaela Tobin's newest album. Uh, Remains is the name of the album. It's under the moniker White Boy Scream. It's released by Crystalline Morphologies. Shout out to Gabby Strong. And the name of the track is Thou.
only have well, that, I think you only have nerds on your show. 